Welcome to this first ever Odyssey podcast. My name is Craig Saxon, Director of Communications for Odyssey, and I hope to use this medium to highlight different initiatives and studies from our global network. If you are unfamiliar with our community, I invite you to check out our website, odyssey.org, where you can join a forum discussion, a working group call, or just learn more about our community. And you can follow us on Twitter, at Odyssey, to learn more about our collaborative open science work within observational research is used to promote better health decisions and better care. My guest for today's first Odyssey podcast is Jenny Lane, orthopedic registrar and versus arthritis clinical research fellow at the University of Oxford. Jenny is the co-lead author of the hydroxychloroquine safety profile that was recently published by Lancet Rheumatology. Our conversation leads off with the findings and some insight on how this global network study that went all the way back to the Odyssey Studiathon in March was conducted. But after that, we hit on several areas, including how she became personally connected uh, connected with rheumatology, uh, some of the clinical and methodological impacts that this study had while in preprint. And she also gives some early insight on another hydroxychloroquine-related study that she's leading and is also currently in preprint. Uh, this one focuses on potential connection with areas like depression, suicide, and psychosis. It was a pleasure having Jenny on this debut episode. I hope you enjoy it. You can follow her on Twitter at Jennifer C.E. Lane. That's Jennifer C.E. Lane. Uh, she had an insightful thread about the study following its release. Now on to my conversation with Jenny Lane. Jenny, first of all, thank you uh, for joining me and, and congratulations on having uh, your study uh, published in Lancet Rheumatology. I know it's been a long, a long journey, but it's got to feel uh, pretty good right now to, to, have that, uh, to have that out there. Yeah, definitely. And I think, um, I think as we're all finding with 2020, uh, it's been an unusual year with lots of different things happening. And um, yeah, it's been, an in, it's been an incredible experience to be part of. Um, and uh, yeah, really, really interesting uh, study and, and piece of work uh, to do. So, you know, interesting for a, for a community like Odyssey that, that uses this tagline, join the journey. There's a couple different journeys that I want to touch on in this. And, and, you know, one is kind of the, the, the study itself and, and your journey to, you know, how you became involved with it. But also there's just kind of this, the journey of hydroxychloroquine itself, which if you think about it, you know, at the beginning of 2020 is, is a, a drug that, you know, is used in, in, in several areas, including rheumatoid arthritis. And within a few months, it becomes really one of the most well-known drugs in the world and heavily politicized. And it's not because of any changes to the drug, but, but obviously with, with what ha- has happened with COVID and, and everything. So let's talk about the drug itself and, and the findings in the study and, and how I, I think RA patients should, should feel about it. So Let's just talk about the study itself and, and the findings specifically with RA patients. What are, what are the key findings that I think these RA patients should know from your study? So the main reason that we set out to do this study, so bearing in mind this was something that we were doing um, in the, kind of the, the beginning of March, which was when for you know, us in the UK, this is when we were starting to really think about uh, COVID and hydroxychloroquine had come up and the first thing we thought of and especially as a clinician 
you're thinking you first don't, don't want to do any harm. And the idea, you know, there are studies coming out that were saying, oh, we think this is going to help treat COVID. And the first thing we thought is, well, is it safe? And what's the evidence uh, surrounding the safety of hydroxychloroquine? So the first thing we did is we, we looked across the literature in a very systematic way. So trying to find evidence that was not only published in English, but in other languages to find out what the evidence was about a drug that's been used for a really long time, um, especially in rheumatological conditions. And actually what we found was um, there are some drug safety registers that had some case reports. So that's when you have an individual case of someone reporting a complication associated with the treatment. And there were also some studies from uh, single centers that had a, um, a group of patients and discussed their complications. But there wasn't something on the scale of Odyssey where you took a huge group of patients, uh, looked at their routine care and compared them to routine care in it, of patients that had rheumatoid arthritis that, but were treated with a different drug. And so the real motivation was, okay, well, we really need to look into the safety of this. And this is useful on two levels. Firstly, to inform the rheumatoid arthritis population and, the, and the, the clinicians that look after them, but also in terms of COVID and about, do we think that this is safe to give out to people sometimes uh, as a prevention, preventative treatment for COVID, but also for treating patients that already had it. So that was the first thing that we did. And then once we found that there wasn't a study out there like ours or that we'd done, that we were doing, uh, we then went into it. And what we did is we asked people within the Odyssey community, so the data owners, if they wanted to contribute. And then as a group of, of a, a really varied group of people from right across the world, so there's 70, over 70 collaborators on this paper, the first thing we did is we tried to define who we thought uh, the patients should be, um, what, what time frame we wanted to look at them over, and also what outcomes we wanted to look at. And we actually looked at 16 uh, safety outcomes for complications that could happen either in a hospital setting or that would be noticed in family practice or, as we say in the UK, in general, in general practice in primary care. And then what we did is we designed our code, which was a combined effort between the clinicians and also the computer scientists and the epidemiologists to, to translate things that we know from clinical practice into the code. We then trialled the code and uh, looked at uh, whether this appeared to be feasible and sent it out to everybody in the, in the different uh, uh, data sources across the world. And then when the results came back, we, we blinded the results. So we weren't able to see what each data set had shown. And we looked rigorously at the data quality that was coming back because, of course, this study uses routinely collected data. So data that is uh, developed uh, for other purposes rather than for research. And so we wanted to ensure that when we look at these populations, they can, can be compared to each other. And there's enough information that, uh, that means that we think it's of a robust quality that can um, be put into the study. And this is all stuff that anyone who's interested can see online. It's all there. Uh, for you to look at and you can see exactly the steps that we went through. So we looked at which studies could be included and then we would unblind those studies and put it together to make a meta-analysis. So to combine to make an overall result to see whether we thought the risk of having one of these complications was increased or decreased if you were taking hydroxychloroquine for rheumatoid arthritis compared to the main comparator drug that we, we used was sulfasalazine. And we used that because we felt that 
um, from a clinical perspective, they were used for relatively similar um, types of rheumatoid arthritis, so, uh, similar types of patients presenting, essentially. What we found is we did two main uh, studies, which was looking at the 30-day risk, so if you're taking it for a short amount of time, or if you're taking it for a long amount of time. And then we also did a study where we looked at using hydroxychloroquine with an antibiotic called azithromycin, which is um, something that had been, at the time in March, had, had been all across social media and the general um, headline news talking about this was something that was going to be able to cure uh, COVID that had been done in some studies in France. And we also then looked at the risk of having that in the short term or the long term. And what we found was, in the short term, if you're taking hydroxychloroquine on its own, it's safe. You didn't have an increased risk or a relatively increased risk of getting any uh, complications uh, in comparison to people who are taking uh, sulfasalazine. But in the longer term, there was a relative increase in the risk of pe uh, people having um, uh, heart problems, so cardiovascular outcomes that were associated with an increased risk of death. And that was increased, the relative uh, risk increase was 65%. For hydroxychloroquine with the antibiotic, in the short term, there was a twofold, a, a doubled relative risk of cardio, cardiovascular related death. And that's why when we found these things, we obviously wanted to get them out as soon as possible because we were finding some things that were really significant that we wanted the community to know about within the context of a global pandemic where we're really trying to identify um, the, uh, the risk of the things that we do. Some people understand the design of the study. I do want to kind of get back to, you know, the, the, the talk about how you, you came up with the study. But for RA patients, I, first of all, the study itself, it was never meant to be a study of does hydroxychloroquine treat COVID? You know, no. I think, yeah, exactly. No. I mean, that's what a lot of, there's all this, a lot of the social media is, is you know, and, and for obvious reasons, people want to know if this will work. Um, that wasn't, like you said, that wasn't the point of the study. The point is, is this drug on its own safe? And then with these different combination therapies, and, and like you said, because azithromycin was getting a lot of attention early on, the findings yeah. that this could be a dangerous combination, I think was, was the most notable finding. Yeah, I definitely. And especially when you're talking about the short term um, treatment uh, section that we were talking about, we're talking about 30 days. And the other thing that was worrying for us is that we were doing this in patients who had rheumatoid arthritis. And we know that the doses that are generally given for rheumatoid arthritis are significantly lower than the doses that were being prescribed for people for COVID. And we also knew that this was also giving, being given to people as a preventative treatment to stop them from getting COVID. So these are completely healthy people with no conditions that are then getting a drug that could potentially be causing them harm. And we knew that there's always been known that there's a potential um, risk of heart, heart complications, cardiovascular complications associated uh, with hydroxychloroquine because it uh, produces irregular, irregularities of heart rhythm. Um, but there had never been a study of this size to really look at this many patients across this many different countries in order to really determine whether that was a theoretical risk or a real risk that um, uh, could actually be seen in this general population. So, you know, as you say, this, this study is about first doing no harm and really seeing whether on a national level, on a really large scale, 
whether using hydroxychloroquine for both rheumatoid or, or for COVID um, was giving you um, kind of any, any detrimental effects. So, you know, there's a, a lot of people out there who, who just, you know, don't understand the, the science behind it and just want to know, I am an RA patient, I'm taking hydroxychloroquine. The drug itself is getting a lot of negative publicity on social media, but maybe not for reasons that affect me. So like, in your opinion, from findings like, if I'm an RA patient, is it okay to, if I'm on hydroxychloroquine? So I think what comes out of our study is that in the short term, we found that there was no increased risk. But of course, people who are taking hydroxychloroquine for rheumatoid arthritis tend to be taking it for a long time. And the thing that we found there was that there was a relative uh, increase in risk of, of 65% compared to sulfasalazine for a, for a risk of cardiovascular related mortality. So death associated with a cardiovascular um, uh, condition. From that perspective, that is something that I think within the RA community and within uh, the uh, research community, we need to take forward and to investigate whether this holds true in other situations. Because of course we were doing this without uh, large scale studies to compare to in the literature that had been done before, this is a finding that we need to look into further. Because what we understand from this study is that we think that the patients that are getting hydroxychloroquine do not have um, other reasons why they might have an increased cardiovascular risk. So when they were put on the drug, drug, we assume that the contraindications that would be given by drug authorities like the FDA or the European Medicines Agency, that the, that the patients don't have any of those conditions. So this appears to be associated with using hydroxychloroquine, which is something we need to look into further. I think, I think the reassuring thing is that all the other conditions, all the other safety outcomes that we looked at, they weren't, they weren't found. And it's just cardiovascular mortality, really, that we're really interested in investigating further. You're a researcher, but also you, know, you, you work in orthopedics and trauma, but you also have a personal connection to, to RA. And, and, and so there's a, re, you know, there's a professional and a personal reason that, that a, kind of, a study like this is important to you. Can, can you kind of hit on how you kind of got, went into this study and, and, and the importance in, in both areas for you? Yeah, so I think for me it was because, first of all, um, I wanted to be part of the Odyssey Study-a-thon in general because uh, at the beginning of March, so I'm normally a full-time clinician, but I'm currently doing a PhD and taking time out of my training in uh, trauma and orthopedic surgery, and it became clear that we were going to have to be recalled back into full-time clinical service um, because of the need to respond to the pandemic. So we were preparing to go back in the next couple of weeks. And also it felt like the right thing to do that whilst my clinical work was going back uh, to assist with the pandemic, that also my academic work should do the same. And then as we were looking into the topics that were being covered in the study-a-thon, hydroxychloroquine really spoke to me because my mom has rheumatoid arthritis and takes hydroxychloroquine. And so I was also, as, as it started coming onto the mainstream news and people were talking about it, my mom was messaging me going, oh, shall I stop taking it? Is this a good thing? Or is this, is this actually going to mean that I don't get COVID and that I'm all right? And, you know, it, it was a real, um, it, it was a real personal connection to me that I was like, well, actually, I think we really need to look into this further so that we can really know what's happening. And I think 
from my personal experience, it's a really, there was a really confusing message that was coming out. Um, initially, it was that hydroxychloroquine could cure COVID. And then as uh, subsequent papers came out, it's like, no, actually, hydroxychloroquine is really harmful. So then I had messages from my mom saying, should I stop taking it? And of course, you know, the rheumatological community were trying to deal with this alongside the rheumatology patients that are also taking other uh, drugs. So steroids came out as one that was in the news um, and other biologic therapies have also been um, covered, but also the risk of them getting other infections is something that, they're talk, uh, that they talk about a lot um, in their normal consultations in um, rheumatology as well because some of the treatments for rheumatoid arthritis increase your risk of infection so people are generally worried and cautious about the treatments they're getting so for me I thought well you know Odyssey has the power to investigate this question in a very thorough way and to take it through rigorous steps that may not produce results as quickly as some of the other studies that uh, reach the news but will give us an answer historically about those patients with rheumatoid arthritis that will give us information for those who are um, that do have rheumatoid, who are currently taking hydroxychloroquine. You see this on on uh, the headline news, and also for us considering whether going forward we're going to do a study, as as obviously Odyssey are looking at whether patients who were given hydroxychloroquine for COVID actually had any perceived uh, improvement. But first, we need to know whether there's any potential harm for them. And so that's why I felt that this was a really important study to be part of. And I, I parked my other research and kind of went full, full into this. It has to get you a daughter of the year honor when you, you, your mom is asking you a question and you lead, lead a study that gets uh, published in Lens at Rheumatology. But uh, is your mom still on hydroxychloroquine? Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and I, you know... Uh, I mean, also, she had a, you know, a great rheumatology team that gave out very clear guidance about all the different things that they should do. Um, she was obviously shielding. So in the UK, we had uh, different rules about quarantine. And, and so she was at home as well for a variety of other reasons. So it was quite nice to be able to say, well, actually, this is what we're doing in the study now. And this is what we're actually finding. Yeah. And to talk about the different um, uh, yeah, the different aspects of the study that were going on at the time. Um, it, it's just difficult because I suppose my main worry is, is that it is a very robust study. Um, it has a lot of um, really exciting elements that are a state of the art for researchers, but it's, it's pretty dense in terms of being able to translate that to um, non-clinicians and non-scientists. And so that's, that's my main, my main interest now is to try and make sure that that you know, the, the information that we've had in the study really gets out there. Well, it, it got out there pretty quickly because it was April 23rd when the EMA came out with uh, a reminder of the risk of serious side effects of, of chloroquine, hydroxychloroquine, and specifically cited your study, which was at that point the, uh, the first Odyssey study from the study of Thon to, to hit MedArchive. Uh, at that point, I think you probably had to realize, wow, this is something, this is big. Yeah, and, and it, was, it, was, it was a bit mad because, of course, by that point, I was then back in full-time clinical practice. Um, I was actually recruited to go back, and I was dealing with trauma, so we were obviously not operating on anyone we didn't have to, but with people who still fall over and break their hips. So we were doing hip surgery on COVID patients, and I was in 
kind of you know dealing with all that and then I'd look at my emails and it'd be like oh there's an article in Forbes about us oh and actually science want to speak to us as well and then you know you're starting to hear from mainstream media saying can can we have a conversation with you um and and that especially for me at my stage of my career I was like what this is you know this is crazy and um I think it just um epitomizes what's happened in 2020 with COVID as well because it you know it took over every part of our lives that suddenly the mainstream media said okay we want to know more about this um and I think especially you know, knowing that at that point it, it was on a preprint server and people were just picking it up and and being able to see that putting all of the stages of your study out there um, for in the domain for everybody to see so it's completely clear how you did the study, exactly what, you know, statistical code you used and, um, you know, people can look at the diagnostics we use to decide uh, whether this, the results should be unblinded from a particular centre and should be put into our meta-analysis, our combined results, you know, that was a really, um, a really inspirational time for me to see, okay, well, this is how you can do science and this is how uh, things can work and it allows the community to really discuss what you've done, which is what we really need in, in the current climate. You know, let's touch on that because there are a lot of people that may not understand how observational research works. I mean, you know, you can understand what a, what a clinical trial is. This is a study that you said there are, I think you said over 70 co-authors. Um, yeah. Why, why do you need that many people and, and, and how, how, does, how does it all come together to, to make, to, to create a study that nearly a, a million hydroxychloroquine users in the yeah. study, I think 323,000 users with of hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin. I mean, these yeah. are not data banks you're going to get at any single database. So, so just kind of talk about yeah. how important it is to use that kind of collaborative open science feel. So I think there's two things for me. So there's the, the collaborative science and then there's the observational bit. So if I talk about the collaborative bit first, I've done a little bit of that because I um, I went to Barcelona in January before we knew everything that was going on. Um, and that's when we did Odyssey focused on rheumato- rheumatological conditions. So that's where I started to see how you could work in a collaborative way. But what was amazing about this paper was that there were all 70 of us all sat in our own homes a lot of us having different um, restrictions on our movement because of the way that the pandemic had affected our country. But it meant that we were almost working 24 hours a day. And the amazing thing for me was really seeing the value of the some of the parts being giving you a far bigger whole that I'd never seen before. So, for example, when we were doing the systematic review, we had people um, all over the world kind of working together using um, a software that allowed us Uh, to see each other's working so we didn't duplicate work but because we wanted to not just look at if I was working here I don't have many colleagues who have um, lots of different languages as their as their mother tongue so for example we would probably largely focus on English whereas I was able to say to all the other collaborators um, you know for example um, I'm going to shout out to Heine was our colleague who was based in Shanghai and say right okay obviously the Chinese literature was particularly pertinent at this stage because of the, their uh, involvement in the pandemic earlier. So Heine looked through all of the data sets that I would never have been able to have access to because I just don't, I, I don't have that ability to, to read at Mandarin. And 
And so she, you know, she got involved and she did that. You know, other colleagues were looking at the Italian literature, the Spanish literature, which meant that our systematic review, just as in using that as an example, was far broader. And whilst you could do that in real time, if you were working on your own, you could get it translated. You wouldn't be able to generate the momentum and the speed that we were able to because we were the sum of the whole. Um, some of the parts, sorry. So that, that was one example. The other thing is, is that I think I grew to realize that we all have different strengths. And that initially I thought, you know, I want to be able to do all the bits. But actually, it's far more important that people concentrate on the bits that they are best at and that you're able to tag team along. And if you're really able to work openly and honestly within a platform that allows you to be working at different times of the day or night, depending on your time zone, it allows you to really to, to really work at a speed that I'd never seen before, to be honest. I, I think that was what was really good about that. The collaborative bit for observational uh, research for me is a bit that I find really exciting and that's also why I want to be involved. Because for me, the reason why I like observational research is because you're looking at, you, rather than you looking at patients that are recruited to a trial, you're looking at patients in their everyday healthcare provision. So you're saying that all of the people, regardless of their age or where they live, these people are being involved. If their data is collected, they can be involved in the study. They're anonymized, of course, so it's not as if um, any of their treatment has been affected or changed, but we're able to, to look at their outcomes. And the reason for me is that I think about clinical trials, and most of the time they have an age restriction. So if you're younger or older than that, you might not be included. If you have a lot of other medical conditions, you may also be excluded from the trial. In order to be recruited to a trial, you have to be able to engage with the literature, give your consent, understand the process that is going on. Um, and unless the trial is designed for something like dementia, people who don't have um, the ability or the, the, the mental ability to contribute to that trial and to be able to consent may not able to be involved in that study. And so again, you're making all these caveats of the, the trial is then only applicable to people who are, for example, getting their treatment in the, you know, some of the best centres, you know, the centres that are doing research um, that are within a small age range um, and who don't have uh, multi-morbidity, so don't have other conditions going on. Whereas if you're using routinely collected data, you are looking at everybody, whether you're 114 or whether you're 65, you're looking at where whichever hospital, if that hospital is be, is um, collecting their data, so it's not centre-specific, it's not clinician-specific, if you're concerned that there may be a bias that is developed by the doctor that you see, you're taking all of these things out and you're really trying to say, okay, in the real world, what happens? So not under trial conditions where there may be greater input from nursing staff, greater follow-up, the patients may be more likely to return for their follow-up or be more involved in their care you're saying okay in the general population what comes out and so for me that's why it's really important for us to look at different countries as well because there are reasons why you might get bias in the data for other reasons but if you can say okay we find this signal in the Netherlands and we find it in Spain and we find it in the US that so has a very different healthcare setup from uh, England where we have a largely um, public-based uh, system, if we find that this signal still prevails despite all the other different things that are going on in these different healthcare settings that could cause uh, the data to be biased, then we've got a real answer. 
And so that's, to me, the beauty of the collaboration for the research perspective as well as the, uh, the study design. It's really about uh, you're putting all these people together. These people live in different parts of the world, you know, have very different uh, starts, but they're all, they all are combined and unified in one group because they all have the same condition and the same treatment. And then you're able to look at their outcomes. And so that's why I thought it was just really exciting. Clearly, you know, this is something that's important to the Odyssey community, but, it, but also what you did, how the study went, catching other people's attention because in, I think it was in, in July, uh, another EMA, the, the NSEP, which is the uh, European Network of Centers of Pharma, Pharmacoepidemiology and Pharmacovigilance, uh, their guide on methodological standards uh, and pharmacoepidemiology comes out as a lot of words that I wanted to try not to pronounce, but hopefully I got half of them right. But, you know, again, your study is cited in there, not necessarily because of, of the results, but because of the design, how it was done as, as a guide to, you know, how future similar studies can be done. Again, being part of, of a design, a study design like that, that can impact how future studies are done. That had to be a rewarding thing to be part of. Absolutely. And I think, I, I wonder how it, it'll be interesting if you ask some of the real core senior Odyssey members how they feel about it. From my perspective, coming in relatively fresh in 2020, it feels like some of the things that they had spent years and, you know, in some situations, decades developing and really thinking about and thinking about these innovative ways to do collaborative observational research have suddenly found have suddenly sprung into the spotlight because they were able to rapidly produce evidence for COVID and it's all you know it's all out there in order that the research community can really uh, appraise the ideas and really you know if you want to you can you can replicate it you can do it yourself and I think sometimes there's a criticism with some parts of research that it's you're not able to replicate it or the the, the paper will not give you enough information for you to understand whether this is a true result or not. And that's a real criticism, especially for observational uh, data. So using routinely collected data is a real criticism that has come out because if you can't see the sources, you can't see how things are done, it's very difficult to know whether there's, um, whether there's bias in the, in the results or there's something that hasn't been taken account of that is causing the data to give incorrect results. And what this study tries to show is okay but we can try and we can get over that if we're all very you know if we're all very clear of how we've done the study and I think that's why it was picked up it was picked up because it was um the study uses state of the art statistical techniques but also ways of collaborative working ways of trying to pull data in from different countries because that's that's how you can compare and especially from their perspective you know they're thinking as a regulatory body trying to give advice to lots of different countries if you're able to do a study where you've compared it on all these levels you've got some really good evidence there to take that forward so uh, yeah i mean I, but I, I the one thing i'd definitely say is that i can't take credit for that i i was here to to help with this but that was based on a lot of long work really inspirational or kind of inspired ideas that are innovative to take things forward and I think 
with the study-a-thon and the volume of work that we've done in 2020, I mean, obviously it's done a huge amount in 2020, which maybe, you know, no one could have predicted would have happened because of, because of COVID, has really shown other parts of the research and the scientific community what can be done and, and opens the debate as to whether that's a way forward and what other people think about it. Let me wrap up with this is there's no victory lap. Certainly after this came out, you went into another study that I know is on MedArchive right now and is under peer review on, on the risk of you know depression, suicide, and uh, more with hydroxychloroquine. Let's not go too deep into to findings. It is on MedArchive. Uh, there are links available on the Odyssey website, but maybe one or two things about that study that you found interesting that, that uh, might get other people to, to go check it out. I think what was interesting was obviously we had um, been noticed by the European Medicines Agency and we started to be noticed by people because of the study that we'd done. And people started to reach out and say, we are concerned that we're getting in a signal for neuropsychiatric uh, complications. So risk of uh, depression, major depression, psychosis, so um, kind of hallucinations um, and kind of uh, disordered thinking, uh, sometimes known as uh, schizophrenia, and the risk of suicide associated with taking hydroxychloroquine. And that was, for me, uh, you just heard me do it, as a audible gasp kind of moment, because uh, we hadn't looked at that before. We'd looked at uh, physical uh, complications or outcomes, and we thought, well, we need, to, we need to look into this. And obviously, there's a lot of reasons why those signals may be coming out in the context of a global pandemic where people are being isolated, there's a lot of psychological things that are, you know, obviously happened during COVID as well that may cause these uh, things to happen. But we thought, okay, again, first do no harm. Can we see if this is a signal that happened in the rheumatoid population before COVID at the, at the doses that the rheumatological uh, community take and in outside of a pandemic environment? And what we found was that there was no association. So from that perspective, that was something that we put out because it's like, okay, well, you know, we looked into the safety outcomes before and we should extend that out. We had a lot of the studies designed set up and ready to go. We had to change and tinker with a few things to make sure that we weren't um, including any uh, different uh, exposures or, um, how can I explain this in a lay way? So kind of anything within our statistical methodology that may cause um, skewed results. So we did, we were able to tinker with that. But then what we did is we also um, worked with people who uh, know the field better in psychiatry, made sure that we had our outcomes uh, correctly defined, and then ran, ran the study again in uh, a, a smaller uh, cohort of um, databases in order that we could get the study um, uh, moving. And uh, that was really reassuring, I think, especially. Um, uh, from a personal perspective as well for my mom because you know we've already got one outcome that says you have an increased risk of cardiovascular mortality and I think things about uh, psychiatric outcomes is you know obviously that, that was really worrying and to be able to respond to that saying that there have been these um, reports found um, but we haven't found them historically was was also a really nice thing to be able to do and it's all there as you as you say it's all going through peer review at the moment um, but we've put the paper out in order that the regulatory bodies can also see and, and appraise you know our study design and everything else to make their own opinion which is what is really important within the pandemic 
again, that study, the uh, risk of depression, uh, su suicidal ideation, suicide and psychosis with hydroxychloroquine, that's out on MedArchive. Uh, the safety of hydroxychloroquine now in Lancet Rheumatology. Again, congratulations on, on the study, the great work, the important work that was done and, and uh, the impact that it's had and uh, look forward to seeing anything else that, that, that comes uh, from you and, and, and the team uh, in the future. But thank you, thank you for joining me today and talking about the study. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this Odyssey podcast. And thanks again to Jenny Lane for sharing her insights on this important work. You can expect to hear more about this and similar work at our 2020 Odyssey Symposium, which will be held virtually October 18th to the 21st. For more information on that and other Odyssey efforts, please check out our website at odyssey.org or search Odyssey on both Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again for listening, and please join the journey.